0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, our guest is Gene Young, who joins us today from the California Bay Area, my old stomping grounds in the United States. Gene is the founder and CEO of Akita Software. Prior to that, they were an assistant professor at the computer science department at Carnegie Mellon and worked on their PhD at MIT. Gene Young, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. This is super exciting.
0: So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software?
1: Well, so I think one one thing I would like to say is I used to think that all well-maintained software uh, should have similar characteristics, you know, good documentation, um, modular, all this stuff. And I am, one thing I've come to realize over the years is that not all software was meant to be maintainable, and that is okay. I used to judge code pretty hard for not having the qualities of maintainable software, one important thing is, is to really be honest with oneself about how maintainable the software is intended to be and, uh, indicating that. And, and I think that, you know, in, in the space of intended to be well-maintained software, it's, it's, you know, the, the usual suspects, but outside of that, I think there's, there's a ton of software that as long as it's honest with itself, that it wasn't meant to be long lived or it wasn't meant to be used at a certain scale. Um, it, it deserves to exist too.
0: <laughs> Does that it might To interpret that in that you might be a fan of a rewrite at some point, if a piece of software it maybe breaks the original agreement it had, had with itself or the, the team had about it, like what they were trying to approach with the, the software. If you're like, this isn't supposed to scale, this is for now. Um, where, where's that kind of distinction there for you?
1: Yeah, I am another startup couple stages ahead of us who uh, was really disciplined about rewriting their code every six months. So um, they they wrote prototypes that weren't meant to be maintainable and they are really disciplined about throwing out code. And I think most people are not so disciplined, but I, I really like that that model as, as even just a, a point in the thought space um, that, that it exists. Because I, I think some people are just so afraid to write code that um, isn't intended to be maintainable because they're they're just like no one throws stuff out and I'm like you know that startup did we we throw stuff out um, we've done rewrites in our company I, I think that rewrites when you're small and early is you know doesn't take that long in the grand scheme of how much time you're going to take maintaining that unmaintainable thing and and so yeah I, I think that prototypes that are meant to be prototypes are 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 a great thing too
0: now if I understand that, because if it's like the intention is that they're not going to be maintained for a long time, are there trade-offs that those teams are then able to make? Like, would you advocate for like, well, we don't need to worry about writing automated tests or something of that realm? Or is it more of like...
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, most seed stage startups I know don't have automated tests. In fact, uh, <laughs> um, I did a Twitter thread the other day about how most um, most software teams in the wild don't have the kind of practices that developer influencers talk about. I think most teams don't have the tests that you're supposed to have. And um, whenever I've dug into it, it's made a lot of sense. Either you know the code started out being a prototype and then it evolved beyond what it was supposed to do, or it was legacy, never had tests. There, There's a variety of reasons. And I'm um, and I think that the goal of a piece of software evolves so much from a first prototype to something that's supposed to scale, that um, something that was well-maintained in the beginning, what does that even mean? Um, it's 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 a completely different beast. And and I think that here, here's another controversial point of view I have, I guess, which is that I'm Setting software up to be maintainable can sometimes hide the fact that that software was never intended to be maintained for this new purpose that the software is now being used for, and maybe people should be more honest with themselves
0: about that it's it's interesting take there i'm um, I'm cringing a little bit but i'm also trying to like in a, in a way of being like ah because i I work on software that's usually been built many, many years before. And so I don't usually get to be part of those. I intentionally avoid being part of the early stage of projects because that part of, to me is like the, the chaotic side, part of the process where companies are trying to figure out where they're going to be and who they want to grow up to be and stuff like that. And so I just get to deal with like the long-term ramifications of them not rewriting or not figuring some of this up down early on, because I also understand, and I have, I'm empathetic to teams that like, you have to make those trade-offs because you don't even know if this product's going to find a good fit in the market and you're going to have customers and you know, is it going to pay for itself? And so you can keep evolving it or adding new new software into your, your technology stack.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, you know, even especially the growth stage of of these companies, I would say, is where like a bunch of stuff goes down, right? Because if you think about it, software was initially built for something, you're all of a sudden extending it with all these new features, your database needs to scale in a way that it wasn't intended to scale before. The way you're, you're, you know, moving data around all of a sudden needs to scale in a way that it wasn't intended before. Uh, You had set up your processes for, you know, maybe like, Dozen people, a few dozen people, team. You're seven xing, ten xing your number of people, in that kind of environment. Like, what is maintainability? Is even, you know, is I would say, um, up for definition.
0: Do you often use the the metaphor technical debt to describe things with your customers or your within your team?
1: Our team consciously takes on tech debt. Um, we don't really use that term explicitly a lot. Um, I think we all know <laughs> what we're talking about most of the time. Like, hey, we're going to, you know, here are the judicious shortcuts we're going to take. This is, this is what we're going to do. We're pretty aware of. Um, we have just been uh, 2xing our database size instead of implementing certain practices because we're like, look, we thought about the trade-offs, and um, this is going to take this amount of time. It's not going to be a problem until, you know, about three months from now. Um, we're going to revisit this two months from now. I, I think that it's really interesting to to hear your your side of things, Robbie, because I think that I used to also be um, mostly looking from the other side, like, oh, there's like these like piles of code. I'm like doing archaeology. Why is this this way? But then um, when you when you start at the early stages and you're looking at how people are doing their software processes, you know, one, two, three, four stages later, it makes complete sense that the code ended up in. The way it did, because it it wasn't a linear path to getting there at all, and um, I, I think even people who are you know make make the most uh, judicious tech debt trade offs end up like you just don't know where you're going, right? And so you can't take a straight
0: path to the final code base at all. No, it kind of it just it happens, <laughs> or maybe it's it's organic, and I think that's that's a, that's an okay thing as well. Do you, if you as you reflect back on earlier parts of your career used? Do you feel like you use the metaphor technical debt or work with people that you felt like in in retrospect, it was kind of that you were talking about it, maybe the wrong way or have misconceptions about it and would label things as technical debt, maybe you would disagree with?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I um, So I come from an academic programming languages background. I got my PhD in programming languages. I was a professor working in programming languages. Um, I was publishing in programming languages conferences. And I think that the assumption that a lot of us made was that tech debt is bad and should be reduced at all costs. Uh, I've come to see it as, you know, it's something you trade off with other kinds of debt. It's, you know, like... um, optimizing your system to be the most streamlined technical system is going to be at the cost of many, many, many other things. It's going to be at the, the cost of your human processes. It's going to be at the cost of your business processes. It's going to be at the cost of, you know, uh, <laughs> the sanity of your engineers in, in, in some senses. And so um, I think that a lot of us who came from an academic programming languages background or an academic software engineering background, um, how we were trained was like, this is, this is tech debt recognize it it's bad here are here are all the practices we're going to put in place to reduce it if you ever see you know a b c or d like send send alarms we 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 have a couple a few of us programming languages phd's on our team and i think like within like one week of uh, understanding the landscape of decisions that we had to make regarding the software it's like all right we can like We have to build the software for one of 10 options now. We don't know what any of them are. And the software only has to be this good. Um, And I think that in the beginning, people were like, oh, yeah, we're going to reduce tech debt whenever necessary. And at some point, we're just like, no, um, this, you know, (laughs) the trade-off space is, is so much more complex than that.
0: And I don't think you're advocating for not removing technical debt, right? Just make that clear for the audience.
1: I am. So I'm not advocating for taking on unnecessary technical debt. It's it's a it's another it's it's another uh, dimension of the trade-off space. Especially, well, I think that at all points, I, I think that there are people who like to talk about software. will we'll say, you know, there's a time and a place to reduce tech debt, and from watching software teams of all stages and so you know our our users tend to be much later stage Um, a lot of our uh, the users that we come across they have you know multi-decade old code bases and they're saddled with the tech debt choices of of the past and for them it's also not the time <laughs> to reduce tech debt because of you know how it trades off with um their current engineering staff or the current business decisions or things like that and so i'm um, I, I think that tech debt is one of those things that's always going to be there. Um, <laughs> how you choose it's um, my I had a friend tell me once their, their favorite uh, their favorite comic book artist said that for there's always an additional character. In in your comics, so for children, it's the environment. You're always you know interacting, learning, playing with the environment. And for adults, it's it's their emotional baggage of the past. And I I think for software teams, the additional character is always tech debt. You know you can um, you can treat tech debt as you know just like the family member that's always there. You can treat treat tech debt as the villain, but it's it's a permanent character.
0: That's an interesting way to think about it. And like well. Do we have to invite them over for dinner, but it's it's they're coming over for Thanksgiving <laughs> okay, we'll just
1: yeah, are they coming anyway? <laughs> what kind of seat do we give them to mitigate the blast radius of when they <laughs> when they implode?
0: <laughs> wow, that's um, I'm gonna have to ponder that one for a bit. You know something you said a little bit ago as well as you'd mentioned developer influencers. what would you de- how would you define a de- developer influencer? What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I sort of just made up that term when I did the tweet thread because I had to describe, you know, this is who people are listening to in the developer world. I I think there's there's a few dimensions of it. I think that to me, like who I would consider developer influencers, like, you know, Rob Pike, uh, the now canceled Richard Stallman, um, a lot of the, you know, the Bell Labs people. Um, but, you know, that those are like the old school influencers. You know, they they wrote a lot of um, foundational software. They wrote a lot about the software, you know, their writings on the various mailing lists. And now like the Google groups um, are people, people know them. I think there's also the the modern versions of that. You know, um, I think the the creators of Julia, the creators of Elixir, the creators of the languages that people know and love um, are somewhat influencers. I think these communities have their own influencers, people who are contributors or um, big users of them who write a lot, blog a lot. I, I had this Twitter thread where I talked about the, what the developer influencers talk about is different than um what the what the people do, um, and I think that. People thought that what I meant was developer advocates or people who are paid to represent companies, and um, I think influencers often do get hired uh, into these companies, um, and they do have influence. But I would say, like, if I look at spheres of influence among my developer friends, it's still you know like the the main contributors or like the main builders in, in a community, and, and not as much the the people who are hired to to market um, for some of these tools. Although it, it sometimes Overlaps.
0: So, when you're saying that their 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 approach and developer influencers, do you think? That, and you saying it's like kind of a, a disconnected from like what maybe I'm air quoting what real software teams and processes actually look like. What do you mean by that?
1: Um. Yeah. So, I I mean, obviously, I have um I have a skewed view of this because I, I live in Silicon Valley. Um. You know, we took venture funding from some. You know. Reputable venture capital firms, and when I first moved out here, I'm you know the the discourse was, what's you know what's Amazon doing, what's LinkedIn doing, uh, what did Facebook do here? When I talked about you know this is the kind of infra that I think we should have, this is this is what I think people should do, and then when it comes to adoption, people ask you know how how many Silicon Valley unicorns are adopting this, and um, uh, what we were finding was a lot of our early signups were companies outside of California, companies outside of the coasts, companies not in America. And they were showing up and they were telling us the problems they had with the software that had been brought up this way. They said, look, it doesn't address this need, that need, all these different needs we have. And for the first couple of years, I was just like, oh, I guess we're not cool, you know, because <laughs> I'm um, one of my investors, you know, went down our user list. And they're like, all right, these are your influencers. And then these are just other people. Because, you know, there's there there is like a like a currency of influence in Silicon Valley. And I am for a while. I was just like, man, I'm <laughs> I somehow our center of gravity is, is off or something. And then my my aha moment was, wait a minute, the people who have. The processes from the Facebook and the Googles who are paying attention to what the Facebook's and the Googles are doing. That's such a small fraction of I um, total like the total mass of software development. that's such a small fraction of the mind share. And it took me a while to realize because when I looked at what was being spoken about at conferences, what people were blogging about, it all matched this like trickle down assumption of software process. And I um, people were actually pretty embarrassed. To tell me their their actual processes because I, I would show up. Um, so so Akita, my company is an observability company. I would show up and I would say, "Hey, we're doing this stuff. You know, what observability do you have in, pla- in place?" And people would say, "Oh yeah, we use um, Open Telemetry. and We're using Lightstep or we're using Honeycomb." And then um, you know we don't have uh, we don't have these kinds of needs that you're talking about. And then we would get to the end of the meeting, and they'd be like, "Oh, you're right." I would ask a few follow up questions, like, "Hey, so these modern processes that you talk about, how many services are those installed in, or you know, how often <laughs> are these being engaged or deployed?" And um, the real answer was it was always something, something different. And um, some, something else we found too was um, in the beginning. Um, you know, I, I don't really have product management or user research experience, so I just asked questions how I thought you should ask them, which was, like, what, what do you want me to build you? <laughs> um, and um, I quickly realized that the things the developers are asking for were so far off from what they ended up using. And I, at first I was like, what, what's going on? You know, what, what, why? Um, and what I realized was they have this notion in their head, especially if they're talking to other developers on the outside, like oh yeah we <laughs> we have great tests or oh yeah we're totally there on our X migration, and then um, the reality was they were much earlier in the migration. They're much earlier in in the modernization of their processes, and um, it actually just didn't make sense for them to test to the insane degree that <laughs> some of the people who who blog about it. I mean I. A side tangent is I, I went to an all-girls school, um, and, you know, people probably hear a lot about young girls get blasted with, you know, body image things. It, you know, Photoshop is bad. Um, you know, like there's there's like impossible beauty standards. There's impossible uh, everything standards. You have influencers saying, I wake up at 4 a.m., I beautify myself for only 20 minutes, then I look like this. And so actually um, we had a lot of assemblies when I was in school of, you know, sociology researchers and things like that telling us, don't listen to this. This is not true, and they would like actually like deconstruct Photoshop for us, and um, I had this kind of very similar moment with developers where I was like, oh my gosh, this is the exact same thing going on. Like these people are embarrassed to tell me this is like these are our real processes. Like it would take a while for them to tell us. It would be maybe like three months of me waiting for them to adopt the feature they requested when they were not adopting it at all, and then wondering why to to like actually have. Have this realization that, um, and this is why I call it, you know, quote unquote, real software process, because um, it's 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 the same thing where you have people um, talking about these idealistic, very beautiful, very nice things, and like no one I was encountering was doing them, and, and no one was talking about it.
0: We'll be back with our interview with Gene in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please take a moment to consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Gene Young. One of the my goals with this podcast and having these conversations was to just to ask very similar questions to a lot of different people, so people can hear the wide variety and how it's not we're all not in unison. And I know I know a lot of people, especially if they're working at smaller companies, they look up to like who's who can afford the time to talk about how they're actually doing things or how they're aiming to do things differently. And then when you you know every conference benefits from having speakers that are going to be from a large reputable company, because that helps probably gets, you know, more people in chairs or, you know, attending an online webinar or something like, oh, what, what are they doing at Amazon versus some company you've never heard of before, right? And you're like, well, I don't, I don't know what, like, what kind of challenges does that company have, you know, that has like 10 developers versus the company that has 10,000 developers. But those are the the teams that potentially have the bandwidth to, to talk about this stuff, maybe a little bit more, have people in those roles that can do that, or, I, I, as you were kind of talking about this a little bit, I thought a little bit about how my team's embarrassed about some of our workflow processes. I'm happy to admit that. But sometimes it also means that they're wondering if the grass is greener somewhere else. Like, well, we, we are, we're we not able to do what, you know, I'm going to go work at some other company that has this shit figured out, you know, and it's like, what, no.
1: Yeah, and they usually don't like every one of my friends who switch companies for process has been woefully disappointed. Um, and and also there's there's a thing where you know the the observation that that really hit me um very hard as I've been talking to software teams across the industry. i um, starting my company is if you're at an Amazon or an Uber, you have whole multiple teams to manage developer productivity. So you have like multiple testing teams. One team is responsible for like running test infrastructure. The other team is like responsible for texting that team when anything goes wrong with that infrastructure. So you have test teams for your test teams. And <laughs> like I, I think in the like beauty influencer world that's the equivalent of you know the influencer waking up having a hair team a makeup team a nail team you know people sending them $10,000 rings. You just can't wake up and look like that. You know <laughs> like it's, it's not even so. So I think then they're like, oh, yeah, just use this face cream and you can look like me. No, that's not true. They have people to do things for their people, you know, so someone who had been at Uber um, retweeted my thread, and he said, you know, when I was at Uber, there was a whole team responsible for monitoring my team who was responsible for writing tests. You just don't have that in most places. And so um, I'll bring this back to the observability space, um, which we're in. Um, so I'm— um, You know, a lot of the the teams we encounter, they do not have whole observability teams. They do not have developer productivity teams. They don't have tools teams. And even one of the companies, I am working on a blog post with them, I had put, you know, like, Sentence. Oh yeah, we didn't have a developer productivity team to do this for us. And he's like, like who do we think we are even writing that sentence? Like that's not who we are. And so I I think that on the one hand, sure. Like if you look at you know your average AWS developer, their processes look pretty good because they're waking up and just doing some stuff. But there's like fifteen teams working full time to support that, and that's just not most. Most software shops.
0: Do you think, you know, for those listening that might be like, well, maybe there is like these panacea places I can go to where I can get so do you think the people that are in those teams probably feel a better, a better sense of fulfillment as a software engineer because they're part of a team that can afford or an organization that can afford to have all those things in place? Or what's been your take on that?
1: I think it really depends on what you want. So I've worked at Google, I've worked at Facebook, I've worked at Microsoft Research. And I will say, um, so I was at Google in 2007. The software process was pretty great. Like we had, um, you know, all the code that got checked in was beautiful. Um, you could not, you would not see any example of strings being passed by reference in there. Um, I was writing in C++. C++. Um, you know, um, everything was spaced exactly right. Everything was, you know, they they like, this was, you know, enough years into Google that they had gotten their process down and I don't know like if it's devolved since then, but there was there was a process in place. And so sure. Um, that was beautiful, but I also didn't go to I, I never went back to Google actually because I was like, I'm one of like how many thousand developers at this point. Um, and so that like I, I just felt like you know my like the marginal benefit of me passing in my pristine, you know, like, four spaces in uh, no overhanging <laughs> arguments off the line like all that code like i'm just like look like i don't really feel like i'm making a big impact here right like i'm i'm just part of the machine and so i, I think that you know there there's trade offs like I, I i like sometimes i envy people who can, who can be happy in a situation like that cuz that was a great process um but but i think there are trade offs cuz i think that as big as Google is, they only take so many developers. So there are developers to to whom, like, that's not accessible. And then there are developers for whom that is an accessible option who are just like, look, like, that's too many developers. Like, I don't want to be part of that. And I will say, like, when I worked at Facebook, it was – I think Google had put insane discipline into, the, into all their processes, and I have never seen that at another company that I have been at, or um, interviewed with, or, you know, interviewed for, like, user user stuff, um, but um, it, it exists. I will admit that um, too many years at Google for us as a startup now is a bit of a hiring red flag because we're like, someone who has existed for so long in such a world, like, are they even fit for the external world anymore? Um, uh, I I think that, you know, there there are trade-offs. There are places that, you know, just as there are influencers whose actual lives are wake up, hair team, nail team, makeup team, clothes team, like, there are people out there, but do you want that to be your life? I think is, is, a is another question. Most like there are, there are many people who could be influencers who are not.
0: Yeah, I can appreciate that. So let's talk a little bit more about Akita software. Can you provide the audience with a overview of what problems you've set out to build solutions for?
1: Uh, sure. Absolutely. So, I'm. Um, our goal is one click observability and I'm, our one investor describes it as no code for observability, and, and here's what I mean. So software is getting more complex. Um, this is part of the reason Robbie has this co- this podcast. Um, but, you know, most software systems um, are these heterogeneous, organically evolved piles of uh, hot mess. Um, and so, like, so, some of them uh, inevitably became this way due to existing for a long time. So just, like, the the, the number of tools. Tw- Tools that you know have passed through the software industry once you've been around for 10 20 years is just insane. And so um so sometimes um you know the heterogeneity is inevitable. Um I think that uh, the rise of APIs, the rise of microservices and and the rise of things like no co- no code and low code have contributed to this as well because Previously, it, it took, you know, maybe a decade for a software system uh, to really become heterogeneous and really complex and hard to deal with. And today it's, you know, you boot something up, you call a few APIs and there you go. You've got a distributed system. It's heterogeneous. It's hard to reason about. In comes the entire observability space, which has become a bit of a buzzword by now and a lot of people will tell you that the three pillars of observability are logs metrics and traces so they'll say look like you you got you got your logging you always have to log you want metrics cuz you want to know if your system's falling down and then you want a trace cuz you want to know like how stuff is flowing around I have a blog post where I say, well, that's great and all, but that's kind of like saying programming is about manipulating assembly instructions. There's really like a higher level thing you're trying to do with programming here. And I think the higher level goal of observability is to understand your software systems and to have models for understanding them. And right now developers are using, they're consuming logs, metrics, and traces to build those models in their head. And so one of uh, the motivations for us is like, okay, how can we make it easier for programmers to build those models? Um, and there are two things we're going after. One is uh, we're setting out to be a drop-in solution. So we don't necessarily need to be a power tool. So a lot of these observability tools are like, all right, instrument your code, do all this stuff to your code, and then you can get like, better logs, metrics, and traces. And we're like, nope, we want to be like a B-plus on day one kind of solution. So <laughs> we've been going at it with, um, can we just drop in, listen to network traffic, and do something? And so the other part is, well, if you just showed everyone all of their network network traffic, you're no better than Wireshark. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, like what what am I supposed to do with all this? And so the other part we do is we model that network traffic in a way that is understandable. And so we do um, what we call API-centric observability. We um, infer API endpoint structure. We infer data types. We infer how endpoints are talking to each other. We infer the shape of the service graph. And so um, for us, that's a step towards abstracting. Over lags, metrics, and traces, we don't think that's the the end of everything. I think you know uh, what I would love to see in observability is like you abstract over that with like this is how your services are are interacting. This is how the thing above the services are interacting. Software is only becoming more complex, but um, right now, what you can do with Akita is drop us in. Um, we use. Um, a subset of eBPF, so we we use PCAP uh, to listen to network traffic. Um, We'll give you your service graph. We'll give you um, automated tracing. So like if one endpoint is slow, we'll give you this is the breakdown, here accounts, latencies across your endpoints. And then we'll give you um, what you can export as an API spec. This is your API. These are the data formats. You can search it. You can do a bunch of stuff. We're not done. We're still this is why we're still in beta. But where we'd like to go is is essentially if, if a company has no observability in place and um they don't have the bandwidth to instrument or their code is too legacy to instrument, or you know, that they don't know what they have, they can drop us into something that they're pretty scared to touch otherwise. We can give them, you know, logs, metrics, basic traces, and eventually more.
0: It's interesting. You, know, the, you mentioned like an output being API specs is that. Do you, how does that compare to a team maintaining their own, say, documentation for an API?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So, um, so we actually initially got into this this uh, whole thing because um, we wanted to build tooling that uh, assumed people had API specs. We're like, oh yeah, we'll build you some, you know, testing tools, fuzzing tools. Just give us an API spec, and people were like, brb. <laughs> and that was, I think, my first taste of people don't want to tell you they don't have an API spec, or they don't wanna tell you how not up to date their API spec is, but the percentage of teams we encountered, and this, you know, obviously there's sample bias here, but the teams we encountered that did not have this was high enough that we had to shift into doing this full time. Um, if that gives you any evidence of uh, of how that, how, how that went down. Uh, I think that there's a lot of great um, literature, there's a lot of great ideology, there's a lot of great philosophy around um, spec first, API first, write down an API. And I actually, I've been going Around the API specs community, giving talks about, well, I think we should shift to API in the loop, because expecting people to know what their API is upfront is actually, um, it's 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 not practical for a variety of reasons because even if you sit down write your whole API up front that changes even as you develop and then um your API is probably based on a service that calls other APIs and then once you actually run that in prod your understanding of the contract that your API upholds is going to change because like that thing is not just like it's not shrink wrap software anymore right like it's it's living it's a living breathing thing interacting with other things being interacted with programmatically and so the number of ways Ways that will differ from the original spec is just so much greater than any spec that was previously written in history. And like, let's be honest, previously written historical specs were never that great or as great as we hoped to begin with.
0: It's true. The uh, I always think about the. There's always that fun challenge. Um think of how many projects we've had this happen on for ourselves where we're building out something and we're either needing to build out an API or some other vendor is building out an API and we have to integrate together at some point. Right. And like, in order for this all to come together, we all have to come to, so we have to sit down and like spec it out together. And like, this is, this is the agreement we have. And then of course, like as you get closer and closer to like, you know, like, Nope, we need to make changes. And then you have to make a bunch of weird trade-offs and like, you're not, you're not using it the way you said you would use it. And it becomes a big mess. And and so other teams, like we've worked on projects where they're like, oh yeah, we've got great documentation. They'll sell our clients on their platform. And then when we actually get the documentation, it's like, here's a old Word doc that's outdated that, I'm like, this isn't actually, the endpoints don't match at all. And like, here's, so we end up giving them kind of like a, here's actually how you're API works now. Here's uh, We'll update that for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that, you know, people describe it as like, oh, it was this one-off situation. What a mess. But then when I talk to people about, okay, tell me about another time, same thing. And so <laughs> this is what I mean by, you know, this, this quote-unquote real software process. Like, it's so different than what people want it to be. It's so different than what people admit that it is. But it just is. You know, we, we started out with just giving people, you know, we, we saw your traffic here's your spec and they're like but this is so many more endpoints than i thought we had (laughs) and so this is this is um we were we were going after mapping out the graph the whole time but part of the monitoring was we had to tell them which endpoints to pay attention to because they were like what we only documented like three five endpoints and this is like 35 endpoints over here um you know do they even get used um and so yeah i think i think that um one other thing is not even um, it's it's not even you know people idolize people at certain companies. It's even people at those companies. <laughs> uh, software developers, when they're told to speak about something that um you know is is rough is messy, they'll they'll idealize it. And other software developers want to hear that. So there's this you know it's it's human nature across all all influencings.
0: It's interesting the idea that we're always trying to like maybe in some ways project our best ideal version of ourselves in some ways and companies do that as well. And it's, I can imagine it be a very big, you know, thinking about it as someone, I know that you're like actively recruiting right now as well. And it's like, like how, how successful can teams be if they're like, well, we have a huge, hot, shitty mess on our hand, and like, please come in and like help save the day. But it's like, no, come in learn how to work around all the things the way that we do. And, and maybe you'll make some small – you'll come help make more of a mess with us is maybe not the best recruitment strategy, but it's, it's maybe honest.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, I, I think we're probably all still – trying to figure out how to pitch it. Um, I think I think for us, I'll actually, um, I'll, I'll do a whole anti-sell, um, not just with the, the software process, but the general process where I'm like, look, you're joining an early stage startup. What this means is like, you know, um, how much work there is in a week depends on a lot of external factors. It's hard to predict. Um, you know, we have to consciously take on tech debt sometimes. Um, you know, you're... If, if you want to write pristine software on timelines that are on your terms, like this is not the place for you. Um, and I think that, um, a lot of people end up concluding that they don't want to be in the places that write pristine software because that moves really slow. Like it's not just you writing pristine software on that timeline, it's everybody else. And so I think that, you know, um, either you're writing rocket ship software and so like you launch once every 10 years or something, or, um, you know the company is just moving very slow for other purposes, uh, inex- inexplicably. Um, so, yeah, I think you know a lot of people want to be where the action is, and where the action is is messy, is real, is um. There's there's a lot of other stuff stuff happening. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them we're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com
0: slash referrals. Thanks. Out of curiosity, uh, just because I know that you're recruiting right now, what types of roles are you currently hiring for?
1: Oh my gosh, money. So our team is really small. Um, we're, we're actually four people right now. Um, and it's it's a very um it's a very productive four people. I would say like we have kept it small on purpose um so that we're like high, like high communication, like high, like easily aligned, easily on the same page. And so we're looking for um f- you know, front end engineers, we're looking for back end engineers, uh, we're looking for full stack uh, product engineers, and um, we also have two roles that are not listed on our Website. Uh, we're looking for a developer advocate, and we're looking for a product manager, um, and depending on seniority, maybe head of product depends. Uh, and um, I think for us, I, I think that sometimes people are like, "Well, if you're looking for so many people, like, why am I not a fit?" Because like we have we have encountered many people who are like, "Look, I'm looking for a job. You're looking for people. Let's let's do it." And I think that I'm the thing that I've learned is at the early stage, we're looking for like a great fit because when you're only four people a fifth person is such a you're increasing your team by 25% and especially if we don't want to take on even more tech debt what we were looking for is someone who like you know um ex- like experience wise complements our team so we're like a back end heavy team with experience in um programming languages networking systems um you know, like the there there are many different compliments, but um but you know that that's one thing. We also we have a huge gap in front end. But um I think the the right front end person to work with such a back end heavy team, I want, you know, someone who's gonna really stand up for front end needs <laughs> and um, you know, really have like like fun ideas to to bring to bear on a dev tool. For product engineers team, like people who are like, look, I'd have a ton of fun working on a dev tool. Like, I, this is something I can totally get into, totally get obsessed with, and you know, that's really the same across all of our roles. So yeah, like, we have like more open positions than we have people on our team. But I think, I think the three things I'm looking for is, is you know, is is this someone really looking to like, like dig into something, get deep? They're okay with messiness. Two, is this someone who like they really are going to have a lot of fun getting a ton of stuff done in uh, an environment where, you know, stuff is is a hot mess some of the time. And that's OK. We know it. We did it on purpose. You know, we talk about it, but it's not going to be any different. And then um, is, you know, is is this someone who um, they're like they're a similar ambition level to us, you know, like they also want this kind of tool to exist. And so I'm, yeah. I think I think you know these are all pretty hand wavy, but um, we have <laughs> we we have found people where we're like, yep, that is someone we would like on our team. Um, and so I'm I'm hoping we can find find more uh, to bring on to our team in the near future.
0: Nice. I know it's a competitive market out there. I know as a someone who hires people right now, so oh, I'll definitely include a link to that um, to your you know your jobs page in the show notes for for everybody listening, so they can learn more about those roles. Um, you know. Taking a quick step back again on like tooling, I'm curious, you know, I know that you've been um, doing a little bit of research. I know you've been around, I think you said on another podcast, you were around when the JavaScript pop-up was invented, you know. And you know, thinking about software programming over the last several decades, do you think it's more or less complicated, given the amount of third-party software like in tooling we have now that maybe we didn't have 10, 15 years ago, do you think it's more or less complicated to understand the ecosystem of like what a software platform now encompasses i think and like you know you mentioned earlier it's like immediately all these like services come into play do you think it's hard for people to join this industry or easier
1: it's way more complicated but in some ways it's easier so when i got started you know for Until 2015, how I made a web page was I would open in Vim an empty file. I would open HTML, close HTML, and then I would include the packages. And um, I think that after 2015, it it really became (laughs) uncool to do that anymore because you're just denying yourself of everything that was out there. Um, So 2015 is the last time I really did front end. (laughs) But, yeah, I think that when I got started, it was – everything was like you open a blank file and you did some stuff and you couldn't even imagine, you know, getting getting like a, a mobile – app up and running. And um, I judged a university hackathon a few years ago. And it was, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours, something like that. And by the end of it, people had these crazy apps They you know, they hooked up to your bank account, and they give you all these alerts, and they give you these great visualizations, or, you know, they give you like, you could do like, like which based on what cardinal direction you were facing they played different music and I was just like whoa there is no way in 48 hours when I was in college you could have done something like that in a hackathon or you had to be you know the best programmer in the world times two or something because there just was not so much stuff and so I think that for people who are okay sitting in kind of a chaotic environment and just absorbing things from their environment which you know young people these days seem to be very good at. There's just so much more you can do on day one of programming. Because when I learned to program, I'm like, all right, here's, you know, basic and let's write some line numbers now. Like, woohoo, I finally have a thing that shows like an ASCII rocket ship and it sometimes crashes. You know you know what I mean? Like, and that took like, like hours. <laughs> um, and so I, I think it's, it's easier to get stuff done. I think it's harder to understand what's going on. And so so I, I was, I was um, a university professor for a couple of years. I don't think we're necessarily giving students the tools to really make sense of what's going on. Like, do they have a mental model of what's going on with all these APIs? I don't know that anybody knows how to think about it. So one of my um, internal motivations for why I'm doing an observability company is my view is like, look, if you can own people's observability tooling or some part of the stack, you can also start giving them, like, here's your mental model for how to think about it, which I think is is lacking these days um because you know i I feel like most like most of what people are taught in school is like if you got to dictate everything from scratch here's how to think about it but like what happens when it's this organically evolving ecosystem um i think i think it's just different now and so yesterday i was talking about one of the programmers i idolized when i was younger and i i was like there's you know for people who came up when you, all you had was a blank page, there was a certain discipline, like, your memory was so limited. Um, Like, you know, the, your, the tools you had were so limited. If you could actually build big things with that, that was super impressive. Like, like there's no selection function that selects for that today in programmers. But um, what, you know, anyone can do on day one and just, like, if you're a good programmer, what you can do in, like, a year is just so much more than before that, yeah, I think, you know this is probably a better world to live in but um harder in some
0: ways i can i can under, understand that and one of the things i'm always curious you mentioned like i some i'm the kind of software developer that i don't know that i always i'm like intentionally feel like it's okay for me to not to understand how something works because i'm like well i feel like i was able to interact with it i kind of at least i know what the ins and outs are working with it but i I don't need to understand everything and for that I'm I'm going to walk away from that and like maybe one day I'll come back and do a deeper dive into like how that, 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 that thing that I'm working with within the software and I'm trying to think of like a good example, but like whether it's an API or like, you know, I've, I created a thing called Oh My Z Shell, and I don't really understand how Z Shell works, being honest.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that's a, that's a great example because I think that like that is the exact skill set required to succeed today. And I think that a lot of the the old school like people who are really good back in the day, they were able to understand their entire system intricately. That's what allowed them to move fast. And it's a it's a different skill set today. And I think different different brain people are going to be good at it.
0: So, a couple of quick last questions for you as we wrap up things up. Is there a non-software development, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to people on a regular basis?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm obsessed with Judd Apatow's Stick in the Head. So Judd Apatow, as people may know, is you know famous comedic director. Um, Stick in the Head is a book where he interviews a lot of comics, from Chris Rock to Amy Schumer, Jerry Seinfeld, and um, I've always thought of my craft is very similar to stand up comedy. So I think when I was in research, and also when you're in startups, a lot of um, what you're trying to do there's like I. I I explain to people there's like three parts of an idea. There's the idea itself, there's the execution, and then there's the land. And before you try to land something, you don't know how all three parts are gonna come together. I didn't understand for a long time why I really loved hearing comics talk about their craft, but for them, too, there's the idea um, of, you know, what's the joke you're going to tell? There's the execution, like, how did you actually craft it? How did you do your timing? And then it's like, you know, did it land or did you bomb? And until you do all three parts, you can't tell the main way that both, um, computer science research and, um, early stage startups is different than engineering something where, you know, like people have built this before, this is what they need. They want it is you don't know how something turns out until it lands. And so like the more iterations you do, the more you just get up there and you, um, you workshop, 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 the better things get. And so, i I, I think that it, it was really, um, really enlightening for me to hear about, you know, how how these comics approach that, how they deal with just it's it's very existentially, um, threatening to have to have your, you know, like your craft, which is very tied up with your identity and all that, um, be, you know, like like to have to put yourself out there and not know how things are going to go and have it be subject to like all these other forces and people and like things out of your control. And, um, I, I just, I just love that book. And I, I think even people who aren't in research or startups, it's just like such a, like, it's a very inspiring book. I think.
0: Is it safe to assume that some of the takeaways from that would be that just because it didn't land the first few times, it doesn't mean you just give up on the the joke or the, the idea or the concept entirely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think some, some of these comics, they have jokes, like they have a joke concept that, you know, takes them a bunch of time to actually get the whole thing right. Or, you know, they, they workshop like parts of a big set in different ways. They have to like flesh out parts. They have to like figure out how it crafts together. And then, you know, what you actually see in the Netflix special is a result of, you know, years of, of um, you know, getting out there every night and, and doing small shows.
0: Great. I'll definitely include a link to that for the audience in the show notes. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online?
1: Um, so I, I'm mostly on Twitter. Like Twitter is even better than email for me because like <laughs> email, I don't know. Like I don't know if this happens to you, Robbie, but I get like 20 emails a day from people trying to sell me things. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so so Twitter uh, is where, where to find me.
0: Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight to have you join us on Maintainable Gene. Thank you so much for talking and shop with us.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. This was super fun.